We're reading from Luke 24, and it says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they, were there, while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Nonsense. Pure nonsense. That is the first reaction of the people who first heard the astonishing news of the first Easter. Nonsense. Understandably so. For nothing like it had ever happened before. Nothing like it was even expected to happen. Yes, some of the Jews of the first century hoped for the resurrection at the end of time, but nothing like what the women were announcing. Resurrection before the end of time and for one individual before the end of time? Nonsense. A perfectly understandable first reaction to the headlines coming out of Jerusalem Cemetery that Sunday morning. He is not here. He has risen. Nonsense. The word used in the text we just read is a medical term. Not surprising given that the author of the text is a medical doctor. The word Dr. Luke uses refers to delirium caused by a fever. You are crazy would be an accurate way to render the term. Better yet, you are out of your mind. When we turn the page and begin to read the elaboration of the headlines, the response of nonsense intensifies. Not only is the claim that Jesus of Nazareth is alive, but that he is alive in a way no one ever had been alive. On the evening of the first Easter, Jesus came to his first disciples who were huddled in an upstairs apartment somewhere down in the core of Jerusalem. Jesus simply appeared out of nowhere in bodily form without knocking at the door, without opening the door. He just walks through the door. Knowing that they were thinking he was a ghost, Jesus asked, do you have anything to eat? The crucified one is alive in a body, but in a body no longer subject to space and time. Nonsense. Turn the page and read the implications of the headlines. Because the crucified carpenter has been resurrected, the grip of the great enemy of life 
has been broken. Death has finally met someone it could not hold down. And therefore, death does not have the awful, reality, awful finality it once had. Because Jesus has defeated death, death can no longer defeat those who belong to him. Nonsense. Turn the page again. Because Jesus of Nazareth is alive, a new day has dawned. A new day that will never end. James S. Stewart of Scotland put it so powerfully. When Christ left the grave, it was not merely an announcement that there is a hereafter and a life beyond. It was the shattering of history by a creative act of God Almighty. It was a cosmic event in which God was doing something comparable only with what he had done at the first creation. This was the beginning of a new era for the universe. Nonsense. Turn the page again. Because Jesus of Nazareth is alive, his crucifixion is all that he said it would be. It is the satisfaction of divine justice. It is the payment of the ransom that sets us free. It is the victory over the powers of evil and sin. Nonsense. Turn the page again. Because Jesus of Nazareth is alive, he's exalted to the highest station of the universe. He's the central figure of human history. He is Lord of lords and ladies. He's king of kings and queens. He is emperor of emperors and empresses. He now has the last word over everything. Nonsense. You're out of your mind. This is crazy. Turn the page yet again. Something powerfully creative happened to Jesus on that Easter. And what happened to Jesus is going to happen to billions of other human beings. Indeed, what happened to Jesus is going to happen to all of creation. He's the beginning and the archetype of a new creation. Nonsense. Luke, the physician, tells us that some of the women went to the cemetery early in the morning on the first day of the week. They had gone there to anoint the body of their dear friend, of their dear dead friend. When they arrive at the tomb, they find that the huge stone, which had been cemented in the opening, had been rolled away. And to their horror, not to their delight, to their horror, the body of their friend was gone. They looked around, only to see two men dressed in dazzling apparel, who said to them, why are you seeking the living one among the dead? He is not here, he has risen. The women are stunned, as any of us would have been. They're caught off guard, they're confused, they're disoriented, understandably so. They quickly run to the house where the other disciples were staying, and with conflicting thoughts and emotions, they proclaim what they had seen and heard. And Luke records the other's response, they would not believe the women. Not just they did not believe the women, they would not believe the women. Why? Because, says Luke, the women's words seemed to them like nonsense, like an idle tale, like, imagine, like sheer imagination, humbug. You see, we in the 21st century tend to think that the people of the first century were naive, uneducated, unenlightened bumpkins. They would believe anything we say. They would have no trouble embracing news like the resurrection of one man before the end of time. But that is simply not the case. Read the four Gospels, 
and watch the first disciples' first reaction to the words and deeds of Jesus. And you're struck by what William Stringfellow called exemplary disbelief. They had all kinds of problems with Jesus' miraculous deeds. They had all kinds of problems with the fantastic news coming out of Jerusalem Cemetery. They did not believe it right away, for the news did not fit first century worldview any more than it fits the 21st century worldview. It seemed to them as nonsense, understandably so. Yet, not many weeks after that first Easter morning, the same men and women were the were, were a robust, dynamic uh, movement of faith in the resurrected Jesus. So contagious was their faith that within months, thousands of others throughout the empire came to believe that this headline news was true. The news spread like wildfire. Within a few years, says Michael Green of England, the city of Rome had been heavily affected. So had Alexandria, Ephesus, Antioch, and the other main cities of the empire. Within 30 years of the news, the belief in it had spread into the rural areas of North Africa, inland Turkey, and up to the Russian border. Why? What changed their initial, understandable, nonsense response? Why did so many come to believe that the nonsense news actually happened? Two things. Encounter and hard data. Their contagious conviction was grounded in personal experience and objective facts that would not go away. They had encountered the risen one in deeply personal ways, and they knew that they knew, and they had wrestled with a host of verifiable facts. They came to believe that the nonsense news actually happened because of personal experience validated by concrete, measurable data. A, new, a, a term in the New Testament vocabulary of faith is the word reckon. The Apostle Paul uses it a lot. For instance, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Reckon means to weigh, as weighing on a scale. So like thoughtful 21st century people, thoughtful people of the 1st century who heard the Easter news wanted the assurance that the good news is true news. In their minds, this good news, no matter how good it sounds or feels, is only good if it is true. True in the sense of squares with the really real. Yes, the early Christians could have sung the song that we used to sing years ago in the church. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. But that was not enough for them. Every cult of personality makes such an appeal. Elvis lives, she said to me. How do you know, I asked. Because I just feel his presence, she answers, and don't bother me with questions of factuality. Not so the early church. We must bother with factuality, they insisted, for the subjectively true had to be objectively true for it to be truly true. So Thomas, one of the first disciples infamously called the doubter, 
wrongly called the doubter. Thomas should be called the thinker. He would not believe the Easter news unless he saw the wounds of the crucified body of Jesus in the resurrected body of Jesus. Thomas simply needed to know that there was a continuity between the Jesus of the cross and the Jesus of the empty tomb. He's simply asking the questions that ought to be asked. Does the claim by his fellow disciples that they have seen Jesus alive after the resurrection square with the way things really are? Is it really the presence of Jesus that they are experiencing? Thomas is asking the question searching scholars ask. Is the Christ of faith the Jesus of history? Is this Christ I experienced by faith the Jesus who lived in history? So, the first hearers of the Easter news reckoned. They reckoned with their experience and with hard facts. Yes, faith in the resurrection of Jesus is a leap. Faith in anyone. <laughs> faith in anything is a leap. That's the nature of faith. Getting on an airplane is a leap of faith. Keeping your money in the bank right now is a leap of faith. Taking the medicine prescribed by your doctor is a leap of faith. Getting married is a leap of faith. Faith in the Jesus of Easter is a leap of faith. But it is not a leap in the dark. The New Testament never asks anyone, says to anyone, just believe. The New Testament says, look, here is the data connected to the Easter phenomena. What do you make of it? Following good scientific methodology, the writers of the New Testament, all initially skeptics, say to us, here are a number of observable facts. What caused these facts? Clearly, something extraordinary happened to Jesus the Sunday after the Friday he was crucified. Reckon with all the effects around the event. Does each effect have a different cause, or might there be one cause for all the effects? So, on this Easter morning, let's take a little bit of time to reckon with the data. No single fact by itself warrants believing the news. It's the whole package of facts that justify the leap. Are you following me okay so far? All right. Now, here's the amazing fact about all the data. Here is what finally won the first skeptics. Along with all the data, the New Testament proposes an explanation that accounts for all the data. I say that again. Along with all the data, the New Testament proposes an explanation that accounts for all the data. For all the data. This is an amazing fact. One for which every scientist longs. One explanation for all the data before us. Other proposed explanations of the Easter news can account for one or two parts of the data, but it doesn't explain all the others. Indeed, some of the explanations have to ignore some of the data. The New Testament lays all the data out there and then accounts for all the effects with one cause. Now, let me first lay out the major data that we have at our disposal, and then I'm going to go back and focus on four critical hard facts. Here's the whole package. 
Jesus had died. He, he really died. He did not faint, later to be revived in the cold tomb. He really died. Jesus was buried in a tomb belonging to one Joseph of Arimathea. The civil authorities had records to substantiate the exact location. Jesus' death had devastated the disciples. It was, for them, the end of the Jesus story. The tomb was sealed by a large stone. Guards were stationed there around the clock. On Sunday morning, the tomb was found to be empty, except for grave clothes lying there undisturbed. The empty tomb was not by itself proof of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene first thought that the gardener had stolen Jesus' body. Some 500-plus men and women had experiences which they took to be appearances of the risen Jesus. First-century Judaism had no concept of a dying and rising Messiah. The disciples proclaimed the news in Jerusalem, that is, within eyesight of the place where Jesus had been buried. The same devastated disciples became the nucleus of a movement that within years spread throughout the Roman Empire, and the center of the gospel shifted from the kingdom of God to the king, from the kingdom of God to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, none of this data proves that Jesus has risen. That's not how it works. When all that is said and done, the resurrection is still a mystery. But it's a mystery that comes to us wrapped in measurable effects. No one effect by itself leads to embracing the mystery. It's all of the effects reckoned together that gives merit to the New Testament explanation. And the beauty of the New Testament explanation is that it accounts for all the effects with just one cause. Now, as I see it, four critical facts beg for reckoning. They are the empty tomb, the claim by over 400 people that Jesus appeared to them in bodily form, the transformed lives of those announcing the news, and the shift in the center of the gospel. Fact one, the tomb was empty. Jesus' body was missing on Easter morning. This is a solid fact of history. It's as solid as any other fact you might read in a science or history book. Indeed, it is more solid than many of those facts. The tomb was empty. The entire early church unanimously testifies to it, and so do those who did not believe the gospel. They reluctantly admit the fact. For instance, in the Jewish document of the second century, Toledoth Yesu, it is expressly stated that the Jewish authorities themselves examined the grave and found it empty. Towards the end of the 20th century, Dr. Pincius Lapide, an Orthodox Jew teaching in various universities in Germany, argued that yes, the tomb was empty. The question, of course, is why? Why was it empty? So various explanations have been advanced, but each of them, except the New Testament explanation, fails to take into account everything we know. For example, Matthew, the former tax collector, who was one of the writers of the Easter story, tells how the great Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, dealt with this fact. They spread the rumor that some of Jesus' disciples came in the night and stole the body. 
This was the official interpretation of Judaism for centuries. But does it square with all the data? It fails to take into account the guards who were stationed at the cemetery. It fails to take into account that large stone blocking the way to the grave. And it fails to take into account motive. What would the disciples gain by stealing Jesus' body? They were not expecting resurrection. They had nothing to prove. Furthermore, people do not risk their lives for a lie. Uh, Sorry, they do. All the time. Like in our time. But people do not ordinarily risk their lives for what they know to be a lie. Take another possible explanation for the empty tomb. Maybe a cemetery gardener stole the body and hid it somewhere. Now, this explanation was taken seriously in the 4th century, and it was renewed in the 1980s of the 20th century. It was the lead article in Time magazine that Easter. But why would the gardener do that? Because he was afraid, goes the argument, that his flowers and vegetables would be trampled on by the crowds he expected to come to the grave of the dead revolutionary. But, But how likely is this explanation? I mean, does it fit the other data available to us? You see, all the authorities needed to do was ask the gardener where he hid the body. And then they could parade the body through the streets of Jerusalem while the disciples were preaching the resurrection. There were enough people in the city who could make positive identification. Many other explanations for the empty tomb fail at just this point. The officials could have stomped out the Easter fire simply by producing the body. As Ronald Siders suggests, by conducting guided tours to the real burial place as soon as the disciples claimed Jesus had risen. Now, just because the tomb was empty and the body was missing does not prove that Jesus rose from the grave. Historically, the tomb tells, empty tomb tells us that that something happened to Jesus' body. It doesn't tell us what happened. There is, however, one piece of data that gives us a clue to what happened. The tomb was empty except for the grave clothes lying there. According to John, yet another writer of the Easter story, a few weeks before Easter, Jesus had called his good friend Lazarus out of the tomb. And Lazarus came out of the tomb, if you know that story, still wrapped in all the linen cloth on his body and on his head. But in Jesus' case... The grave clothes were left behind as though he had just slipped out of them. The point? Lazarus was resuscitated. Jesus was resurrected. Lazarus would die again. Resuscitation is returned to life as it was lived before death. It is coming back from the dead. Resurrection is going through death. The risen Jesus is, as one New Testament scholar says, he is not simply the old Jesus all over again. Resurrection is being transformed, lifted to a new order of life, and overcoming of death never to die again. The fact remains, the tomb was empty except for the grave clothes. Now, what is the cause of that effect? Fact two, over 500 people claimed Jesus had appeared to them. This was through 12 different appearances over a period of 40 days. 
The Apostle Paul begins his proclamation of the gospel on this note. I delivered to you what I received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to Scripture. He was raised on the third day according to Scripture. And he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom remain until now. Note that phrase, most of whom remain until now. The now is probably 55 AD. Paul is, Paul is inviting investigation. Go talk to those folks, he's saying. Press them on their experience. Check out their psychological profile. What do you make of their experience? Now, the hard piece of data with which the scientist and historian within us can grapple is not that Jesus appeared, but that people had an experience they interpreted as Jesus' appearance. Thus, we find a number of alternative ways of accounting for the appearances. British scholar A.N. Wilson, for instance, argued that what people saw was Jesus' brother, James. Wilson claimed that James had not been all that involved with the disciples before the crucifixion. But in all the confusion around Good Friday, James shows up, and every thought, everybody thought that he was Jesus. Now, how likely is that explanation? James soon became the pillar of the early church. And the first company of believers knew who James was and who he was not, which is why A.N. Wilson then retracted his book. Another theory. This was proposed by a professor at the University of California in Irvine. He said what was really going on is that Jesus had a twin brother who had been kept in obscurity for 30 years who emerges on the scene in all the confusion to take over for his dead brother. That was the headline of the Los Angeles Times. Another alternative theory for this purported appearance is that the first disciples and some of the, the, the 50, the 500 plus people were hallucinating. They had so wanted to see Jesus alive that they projected their wish into reality. But how well does this explanation fit with the other available data? George Ladd observed that subjective visions are real phenomena, but they require certain conditioning to be experienced. These conditions did not prevail in the lives of the witnesses in question. For one thing, 500 people do not hallucinate the same vision. For another, the other recorded appearances of Jesus all took place under different circumstances. And for another, and this is critical, those who had these experiences were not expecting to meet Jesus. They were not seeking Jesus. Yes, they missed him and they wished he was alive, but they were not expecting to ever meet him. Even though he had told them a number of times, that he must go to Jerusalem, be crucified, and raised from the dead. But they did not understand what this raised from the dead means. No one understood, because nothing like it had ever happened before. The women who had gone to the tomb had gone to anoint the body of their dead friend. They expected to see a corpse. And even the two disciples, who later on the afternoon on Easter, on the road to Emmaus, were not expecting to see Jesus, even though they had heard about the empty tomb. It's said that people see what they expect to see. The first witnesses were not expecting to see Jesus. Furthermore, as C.S. Lewis explained, you, you, you figured if, if you've come to the way a lot, you figured C.S. Lewis would get here somehow. <laughs> C.S. Lewis observed, any theory of hallucination 
breaks down on the fact that on three separate occasions, the hallucination was not immediately recognized as Jesus. Mary Magdalene did not recognize him in the garden. She thought he was the gardener. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus walking with Jesus, they didn't recognize him as Jesus. Nor did the seven disciples who, about eight days later, standing on the sea of shore, uh, seashore watching, with Jesus watching them fish, they didn't recognize him. And then there's one more observation about these appearances. The first appearances were not to male apostles, but to female disciples. The first appearances were to women. Now, you might likely know that in the first century, you never built your case on the testimony of a woman. Sorry, ladies. In that day, a woman's testimony did not count. Indeed, if you were going to build your case on the testimony of a woman, it was the kiss of death. Yet the four Gospels report that the risen Jesus first appeared to a woman. Why? Because that is the way it happened. The writers of the Gospels are not making up fairy tale. They're telling it the way it was, as scandalous as it is. The male apostles first learn the Easter Gospel from women. Women, you can now say Yahoo. <laughs> so, fact two. 500 plus people claim that Jesus had appeared to them after his crucifixion. What was the cause of that effect? Fact three. We're moving along. The wonderfully transformed lives of those who claim to have seen Jesus. What accounts for the courage in the face of the ensuing persecution? What accounts for the compassion toward those doing the persecuting? What accounts for the total reorientation of their lives from devastation to joyful zeal, from fear? to risking their lives for the name of Jesus. Ask James, the brother of Jesus. He opposed Jesus during his earthly ministry. He did not believe in his brother. Yet a few weeks later, James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church. Why? Ronald Sider again. Why did James oppose Jesus when Jesus was popular in Galilee and then join Jesus' followers when they were persecuted in Jerusalem? Ask the Apostle Paul, the former Saul of Tarsus. Here's a man who hated Christians. He planned the extermination of the church. He was convinced that the Nazarene sect, as he called it, was heretical, and it needed to be wiped off the face of the earth. Yet he becomes one of the church's greatest theologians and missionaries. What caused this effect? Well, listen to the testimony he gave at one of his court appearances. It's in Acts 22. I was on my way to Damascus to bring more Jesus followers as prisoners to be punished. It came about that I was on my way about noontime. A very bright light suddenly flashed around me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to him, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. Saul's life was radically altered because he claims that the Jesus whose name he sought to wipe off the pages of history was alive. So fact three, the transformed lives of people. What is the cause of this effect? And then fact four, the center of the gospel shifted. And this, to me, is the most critical factor. What was the gospel Jesus preached? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in this gospel. 
What does the gospel of the early church preach? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The message shifts from the kingdom to the bringer of the kingdom. Why? It's often said that the words, Jesus is alive, really only mean Jesus' cause goes on. That was the most popular interpretation when I began the preaching ministry. Jesus is alive really only means Jesus' cause goes on. Now, if that is so, why is it that instead of being preoccupied with Jesus' cause, the early church is preoccupied with Jesus himself? Moses dies and does not become the center of Judaism. The Buddha dies and does not become the center of Buddhism. Muhammad dies and does not become the center of Islam. Jesus dies and he becomes the center. Why? Jesus preaches, receive the kingdom. The church preaches, receive Jesus. Jesus calls people to live in the kingdom. The church calls people to live in Jesus. Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom comes. The early church prays, Maranatha, you, Lord, come. Why this shift from Jesus' cause to Jesus himself? Well, ask those who made the shift. Their answer, he who had died in the cause of the kingdom is not dead. He is risen. He is the kingdom. The New Testament lays out the data. The tomb is empty. Over 500 people had experiences they took to be an encounter with Jesus. Their lives were wonderfully transformed, and the center of the gospel shifted. Thomas falls to his knees and declares to Jesus, my Lord and my God, the carpenter, is God. The New Testament then asks, what do you make of these effects? And offers one cause for all the effects. One cause for all the effects. It's brilliant. Just one cause. He who was brutally crucified on Friday was alive on Sunday. Jesus is alive, never to die. Now, why have I bothered taking you through all of this data on this perfectly lovely Easter morning? For one reason. To explain why the church believes that the initially nonsense news is true news. To explain why the church came to believe that it actually happened. From the beginning, the church insisted that, it for it, that the good news is not good unless it is true news. If Christ has not been raised, says the Apostle Paul, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. If Christ has not been risen, Paul goes on to say, then those who have fallen asleep have perished. If the Easter news is pure nonsense, then... Jesus of Nazareth might be able to be your guru, but he cannot be your savior, and he certainly isn't the Lord of the world. But if the breaking news from the cemetery is true, then a new era has dawned. Our sins have been washed away. We are reconciled to the creator. Evil and death have met their match and do not have the last word. History has meaning. It's heading to the feet of the crucified and risen king. The future is secure. It is held in his hands. The cosmos is going to be redeemed, and we are never alone. Nonsense, or the greatest news the world will ever hear. Nonsense, or news that changes 
everything. 